whenever we meet uh, monks from other traditions, other teachers, they often say the same sort of thing, that they're very impressed with how Lumpur Cha's Sangha continues to thrive and be very stable and growing, expanding since he died. And some other meditation teachers or forest monks, famous forest monks have commented that there's certain qualities that Lumpur Cha emphasized in the way he trained monks and set up the monastery which seemed to have lasted after his death and you might say uh, part of the tradition of Ajahn Chah. One is the quality he often mentioned, atahi atano nato, make yourself a refuge to yourself. Another is viriyena dukkha macheti, dukkha suffering will be overcome through persistent effort in the practice. The last one is sometimes quoted as Sammakhanang uh, Tapo Sukho which means the harmony cooperation of the Sangha means that efforts and the, the Sangha members' efforts in the practice will bring forth happiness as a result. And these three qualities obviously come from the Buddha's teachings, the verses that the Buddha gave. <coughs> Seem to have been um, developed not just during the time that Lumpur Cha taught at Wat Nombapong, but during his Tudong years, they seem to have been qualities that he emphasized and used in his own practice. And particularly after the period when he was a junior monk in his Nawaka years, he stayed in the village monasteries and study monasteries of Ubon. Um, where the teaching in Vinaya meditation and the Tudonga practices was uh, very limited. There was more of a scholarly emphasis on learning the, for the Naktam exams, the exams on basic principles of Buddhism, suttas and verses of Pali, and the Vinaya and then performing rituals and services for the lay community. But after his father's death, 
which seemed to prompt um, was one of the, the times that prompted a sense of urgency to really pursue the Buddhist teachings more fully and to learn and practice meditation, learn about the Vinaya. It was one of the significant events for him that prompted him to go out and seek some of the seek out some of the forest meditation masters of the day and begin what we call his Tudonga years as a forest monk, where he left the village monasteries and started wandering in the forests. And throughout that period, until he was about 15, 16 reigns, when he began Wat Nombapong, but even carrying through when he began his monastery, this sense of learning to be independent in the sense of not always relying on others, not relying on a teacher all the time, not relying on the laity, it's learning to be very self-reliant so that one is not a burden on others. And when he said over and over again, learning to be at ease with whatever requisites came his way, being one is easy to look after, not demanding and whatever conditions he encountered during his practice, during the Tudonga years. Learning to be self-reliant, even to the point where sometimes he had no medicine to deal with or to meet with illness and the hardships of the bhikkhu life living in the jungle particularly catching malaria and some other pains and illnesses. You often just had very simple herbal medicine. And of course, great patience, endurance, and effort in the practice. <coughs> and that's the second quality that he really emphasized. Just persistent effort coming back to the development of mindfulness and investigating the Dhamma. There's different times that he mentioned where that was, he was inspired in that area. And one was clearing up some of his doubts with Lumpur Man about the way to practice or approach meditation, the way to approach the Vinaya. You're learning really to look after the heart, the mind, as the center of your practice. Developing the qualities of Hiriyotapa to look after the mind and thereby keep the Vinaya and follow the Vinaya rules because one is developing the sense of shame based on an understanding of what is right and wrong, good and bad, harmful and helpful and so on and a sense of shying away from doing or thinking, saying, doing unwholesome things. And then Otapa, the fear of the consequences of one's actions if one follows Kilesa, follows unwholesome tendencies, that sense of this will lead to more suffering. So a fear, a concern not to do that. 
those qualities and then just the persistent effort in bringing up mindfulness and learning to reflect on one's own mental experience to see that mental states are just mental states. Feelings of anger, sadness, worry, anxiety, greed, lust, jealousy and so on. All the different mental states of suffering. Having enough mindfulness, clarity to see them as mental states that are without self, just impermanent mental states that arise and pass away according to conditions. And much of his Tudonga years was about developing that kind of persistent effort to bring up mindfulness, as we know, in all postures and often practicing through the night. So there was that sense of whether you're in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, you're practicing just the same, looking after your mind. And then, particularly as he became more senior, he started to gather friends, first of all just friends who traveled along the way with him in Tudonga, the Tudonga years, but then actually Anagarika's novices and monks who started to see him as a teacher and wanted to follow him. And obviously once he settled at Wat Nombapong, those who came to live and practice with him, he started to have a group or a community form around him. And his emphasis on the importance of harmony in the Sangha for everyone's benefit in the practice. Harmony means friendship, cooperation, empathy between Sangha members. So that the efforts that we put into practice are not wasted. We don't have to waste too much time with conflict, disagreements, jealousies and so on. Don't have to waste too much time and effort with monks always going their own way, say in a monastery always going their own way, doing their own thing. He would always emphasize the importance of harmony. So to develop the style where there are regular meetings for work, the meal, meditation and so on. Not that there's always meetings, but just when there are meetings to respect the schedule, respect the way of practice. These three aspects of life as a monk under Lumpocha or under his lineage seem to be universally recognized as, you might say, trademarks or common themes throughout all his monasteries. Something that also he seemed to have found spurred him on in his practice was this meeting or encountering with death from time to time. Especially in those years in northeast Thailand, which was very poor. There was even one occasion walking along a path through the forest, wandering between different villages. He even just met a corpse by the side of the path that someone had died and just 
either nobody knew about or nobody was related or considered taking the corpse away and performing some kind of a funeral. It's just left there, full of worms, bloated. Must have been quite a challenging sort of sight to come across just wandering along through your day. Another time, the famous occasion he talked about a few times when he was staying in a charnel ground, just meditating and by all sounds of it quite peaceful, so probably attaining states of samadhi, the mind very calm. And then one afternoon a crow just landed next to him with a few blades of grass and dropped them in front of him and flew off. And then a, an hour or two later, the villagers brought in a simple coffin with the body of a young boy, or maybe it was a young girl, the first one came in and for a cremation. And then a few days later, meditating again in the afternoon and another crow, or maybe the same crow, but crow landed in front of him with a few blades of grass, dropped them, and went off again. So he just observed, well, what's going to happen now? And sure enough, a few, a few hours later, another corpse was brought in, a young child from the same family. So obviously some illness was affecting the whole family. And little by little, all the children in the family died over a period of a week or two and were brought in for cremation. And just seeing the sadness of the parents and the other villagers, losing a whole, all your children, and that leading on to this sense of what we call Samwega in Thai, they say, Salot Samwei. Samwega is this seeing the, the suffering, the sadness of life, <clears throat> the impermanence of life, the uncertainty of life, the pain, the suffering that we can experience, bringing up that sense of urgency, wanting to practice, wanting to overcome dukkha through the practice. Well, you can see from his teachings that over and over again he was encouraging us to first of all learn the basics, so learn the Dhamma, learn the Vinaya, put it into practice, follow the ways and routines of the monastery that we're in, but then to use that to develop mindfulness, bring up that basic awareness and use that to contemplate you know, over and over again. His exhortation was to contemplate, to see the Dhamma, or see our experience as Dhamma, rather than always taking everything personally. When we come from our background of ignorance of the Dhamma, attachment, clinging, it always leads to dukkha. You might say that's the way of the normal person in the world who has Sakaya Ditti and this basic identification with their body and mind as a self, 
sense of personality, who we are, taking the khandhas as a self. You know, all the Buddha's teachings and subsequently all of Ajahn Chah's teachings are pointing to really question that. You know, don't just take things as self, as me, mine, myself. You know, it's the way of ditti mana, conceit and attachment to views and particularly sakaya ditti. You don't just follow that. That's the way we, we're used to before we came into the monastery. So it's understandable that we feel and think in that way. But question it. Learn from your experience. Turn it into Dhamma by using mindfulness and wisdom. You know, the Buddha talked about a human being as five candors, or in its simplest way, Nama Rupa, a body and a mind. Nama Rupa is without self, the five candors without self, or the twelve ayatana, you know, the six sense bases and their objects, and there's no self in them, or even the eighteen datus, you know, just seeing body and mind as elements, things that exist in nature but have no owner and not self. This is the way the Buddha taught. You study the suttas over and over again. He's explaining this and how the mind of ignorance grasps these candors as self. And what we usually do is try and, you know, understandably make the best job of it. So you, we have, once we've got these five candors <clears throat> that we obtain at birth, consciousness joins the embryo at birth, at conception. We're born, we've got five candors, and then we try and make the best of them. So rather than developing the insight that sees candors as not self, we're always trying to make them the best self that we can make them perfect, make them pleasant, when in their very nature they're impermanent, they're suffering and they're not self. So we're constantly meeting with frustration and dukkha in life. That's our background as we come into the practice. So Ajahn Chah is constantly teaching us to question and look more deeply into our experience. I see that you know these candors will never be perfect. They'll never be all pleasurable. You know, they bring us dukkha, and the more we attach to them, take ownership of them, the more we suffer. A phrase he used a lot was, "They're like a red-hot ball of iron." You know, they. They're red, red hot all over. So whichever part of the candors you look at, you know, sense consciousness, thoughts, memory, feelings, or the body, it's hot, it's painful. The more you grasp at it, the more you'll, you'll be burnt and suffer. There's no way you can find any coolness, any peace in the candors. And yet we still repeatedly take them as self, try to make them the best we can, look after them. We want them to be some other way, but they keep burning us, keep suffering. We keep suffering because they're not ours. They go according to causes, conditions. They rise, they pass away.
Another phrase he used sometimes is that we just borrow the candors. Body, even you know, the mental activity, our memories and thoughts, they're just like borrowed. Because they're not self, our delusion is that they are self. We take ownership of these borrowed things. And it's like, you know, you, when you borrow something from a, another bhikkhu, sometimes we share items or, or borrow something from the store. You maybe you, you see it sometimes, somebody borrows maybe a, a, a tape recorder or an iPod and they have it so long that they start to treat it or see it as their own, even though it belongs, say it belongs to the store. It's just a natural way of the mind. Once you get used to something, you have this sense of ownership. But then maybe one day, you know, it could happen that the store monk says, oh, we require that back to the store. And it's, oh. And all that sense of self is suddenly recognized as suffering. So you realize, oh, it wasn't mine. Or it could be a kuti. You, know, you, you get a new kuti, you move into a new kuti, and after a while, using it every day, if you're not reflecting, then it, after a while you start to have this sense of this is my space, my place. Maybe you don't want anyone else coming in, don't want anyone else telling you how to arrange your kuti. Even though it belongs to the sangha, your mind naturally forms this sense of ownership. Then maybe one day you have to leave that kuti. It's only then that you realize mm, it wasn't mine after all. And this is the way of the candors. You know, once you start investigating them more, you realize they're just not, they don't belong to you. You can't control them. You can't make this body and mind the way you really want. As long as you're following desire and wanting, you get disappointment, so we get suffering. Over and over again, Lumpucha would teach to contemplate, sense contact as a place where wisdom arises, where you can see this lack of self inexperience, the lack of control, controllability of experience. You see things, there's the eyes, there's the object the form that's seen, and then sense consciousness of eye consciousness arises. If it's a pleasant form, we get pleasure. If it's an unpleasant form, we get pain, discomfort. As long as we are letting our mind wander out, focusing on the objects of our senses, the sights, the sounds, the tastes, the smells, while the mind is constantly spun around by the feelings of pleasure and displeasure, pleasure and pain, happiness and pain that arise as a result of sense contact, doesn't see what's happening. So we constantly have this experience of up and down, happy and then not happy, interested then bored and so on. He said, really look at what's going on here. You learn from your experience. Look back at the eyes rather than the object. You know, are these eyes, are they a self? The consciousness arising, it arises dependent on factors, on causes and conditions. 
You can't see in the dark. You can't hear if there's no sound. You can't smell if there's no smell. There has to be certain conditions right for these different sense experiences to arise. When they arise, you'll see how the sense of self forms, the perception. I'm seeing something, give it a name, based on our karma and our habit. We like it, we don't like it, and feeling comes with that. We come back to look at the sense base rather than the object, which tends to lead to greed and aversion arising. Come back to the eyes. Is there any self in eye, the eye? You know, the eye is just flesh, eye muscle, eye senses, cells. Is there any person or being in the ears? It's just form, isn't it? It's just skin and flesh and nerves that pick up the vibrations at the ears. You come back to that. Come back to the tongue, the nose, the touch of the skin as a sense base. And the hardest of all is the mind. But try it, investigate mind contact. You know, say when you're meditating and all the other senses tend to be less stimulated, or maybe it's just the mind throwing up thoughts and memories. But look at the mind itself, rather than getting caught up in the details of the thoughts and the memories. So over and over again, Lumpur, Cha would encourage sense restraint and mindfulness of sense contact. First of all, we, we limit the amount of sense contact, just that helps us to be more mindful of it, because the more <clears throat> sense data coming to us, the, more, the harder it is to see the process where feeling and craving are arising and this sense of self is forming. So we limit our sense contact, we don't indulge too much. We have our vinya to do that. You know, as a lay person, you have the five precepts. So you have plenty of sense contact, but you use the five precepts to re restrain yourself. Maybe sometimes the eight precepts. As a bhikkhu, you have the vinaya. And you have living in the forest, eating one meal a day, not handling money, not having many possessions and so on. You limit your sense contact, but you're still having sense contact. So every day we have to develop the effort, bring up the effort to establish mindfulness, but then contemplate you know, where is the me, the self in that. To do that, you know, we rely on these other factors, other supportive factors, so the, the harmony of the community, the effort we put into our practice, learning to be self-reliant. These three qualities support just that simple practice of sense, restraint and contemplation of the senses.
but inevitably, you know, even in a, when everyone's practicing like this, there'll be sense contact sometimes stimulated by the activities of others. You know, just look how much suffering we have based on how we view and see other people. Again, when we fall back to Sakaya Ditti, then it's always, I'm unhappy because of this person, or I like that person, they're my friend, this person I don't like, I don't like to be with them or spend time with them. You know, we learn to use the Vinaya to teach ourselves this. You, know, you start, Lumpur Cha encouraged us to, as we relate to other members of the community, as we're picking up this sense contact and the preferences and the likes and the dislikes, we use the Vinaya to guide your behavior so you don't just follow your likes and dislikes as you're relating to other people in the community, say. You know, we use the Vinaya, we train in restraint, restraint of speech, action, development of goodwill, respect, you know, the various qualities that the Vinaya brings up, we use them to restrain the more excessive behavior that comes about as a result of sense contact, you know, hearing other people, what they say, seeing what they do, how they practice. Sometimes we're inspired and we're drawn to others. Maybe they provide a good example in the practice. Sometimes we're dealing with aversion. We don't like someone the way they act. Maybe we feel they're acting through kilesa. But you know, keep coming back to look at yourself where your own kalesa arising is arising. We can't change other people very much. We can't control them very much. They have to learn that for themselves. Everyone has to learn this for themselves. But as we're going through our day, you come back, keep keep coming back to your own sense contact, your own reactions and learning to restrain them within the Vinaya and then use the Dhamma to contemplate. Living in a monastery with other bhikkhus is actually a very good placed way to do this because there'll always be different characters from different backgrounds, different ages, different interests, different levels of knowledge, different skills, Over and over again, Lumpur would point out how we come into the monastery with these qualities of ditti and mana, our self, or our sakaya ditti, sense of self. So immediately we'll be comparing with others. We feel someone is better than us, worse than us, the same as us. But we keep coming back to the basic practices of the Vinaya. We accept that those who ordain earlier are the senior ones, they go first in the line as it were. Those who ordain after are the more junior ones. But each person has to be responsible for their own actions. How we relate to others, do we relate from ditti and mana, do we have our conceit, our opinions, our views, or do we try and use the Dhamma? Do we use mindfulness, wisdom, compassion, 
that we re reflect on our own reactions as we're relating to other people, as we see them, as we hear about them. Sometimes you don't even see someone, you just hear about them and that sets off a whole set of reactions, liking, disliking. This is where we can really learn, really practice, if we te teach ourselves. Atahi, atano, nato means teaching yourself the Dhamma. First of all, we hear the Dhamma, but then we have to really internalize it and teach ourselves in these different situations. And you see, Lumpur Cha would do that over and over again. Another story he recounted was when he was wandering in Isan forest after his time with Lumpurman. <clears throat> he had come to one monastery where there was an older senior monk, it was a forest monastery. He just came across this monastery and felt it was a reasonable place to practice. And there was just a small sangha, a few monks living together. But when he arrived, in the beginning, they were a bit suspicious of him because they didn't know him. They weren't sure what his standard of practice was. Fair enough. But the teacher had actually made a comment. He said, I'm beyond anger. Perhaps he was trying to set down his credentials for Lumpur Cha, who he didn't know, who was just a young monk at the time. Because of their suspicions, they didn't let him join the Patimoka or act as a regular member of the community. They kept him as an Akanduka. And Lumpur thought, well, this is a good, good occasion to test out my own Sakaya Ditti, my own Ditti Mana. You know, when there's a group of monks watching you, suspicious of you, not yet accepting you, naturally it brings up your own sense of self, ego. You know, maybe you have the thought, I'm just as good as them or I'm better than them. But that's Kilesa as well. So he thought this is a good chance to practice with this. So he just stayed there, even though they kept him as an Akanduka monk, very suspicious. And he just determined to spend his time there and do everything they asked him in terms of chores and Vinaya training, whatever. Not to complain, not to ask for anything. And also just to watch them, just as they're watching him, he wanted to watch them and particularly the senior monk who had made this statement that he's beyond anger. So he carried on staying there. Didn't ask for any special treatment, didn't ask for anything, just went Pindabhat, did his chores, and he actually camped outside the, the boundary of the forest, on the edge of the forest, because he was an Akanduka monk. So after a while, one of the junior monks felt that he was practicing very well. He couldn't find fault with Lumpur Cha, so he started to feel a bit guilty and asked the abbot if he could, they maybe should let him join the group because he was practicing very well. He couldn't find any reason to find fault with Ajahn Cha. So the abbot gave in and let, them, let him come into the group and spend the reins there. So he spent the whole reins there and he said every day he did his chores, 
even Upatak monks that were junior to him, wash their spittoons, look after them without a word of complaint. So they were all becoming more inspired with him, with his behavior. He's very polite, peaceful in his speech, never criticized others, put anyone down, never complained, always did more that was asked for him than more than was asked of him. He always set up the eating hall, clean it up afterwards, and he wouldn't even think too much about who's junior, who's senior. He would just help out those monks, even the junior ones. And he said that was a very good practice for him, just learning to let go of his dittimana, his ego. Just being a monk doesn't matter how many reins you have, who you are, how much you know. You just do this practice. In Thai they say, cut klau gilet. It's like scraping away the defilements. If you're with, say, a junior monk and you wash their spittoon, you're scraping away your ego when you do that. With every wipe of the spittoon, you're wiping away some of the ego. This is the way Anjan Chah practiced. Sometimes you have to be creative in your practice and do these things rather than always attached to the form. There has to be a certain creativity and you do what's maybe needed at the time. And obviously there's nothing to be criticized about if you're doing more than is required of you. And he'd watched this old monk. One time they say, came back from Bindabata, Ajahn Chah was up on his kuti, which was near the kitchen, and he just glanced out of the window and he noticed the old monk coming past the kitchen. And one of the lay people had left some kaolam on the fire, which is like sweet sticky rice, which they put into a piece of bamboo and then heat over the fire and the sugar and the coconut juice joins with the rice that makes a nice sweet. But the layperson had wandered off and the kaolam was burning and the, the abbot, the senior monk, was a bit sad and thought what a waste of good food. Because in those days there probably was very little food. So he went across and just moved the kaolam so it wouldn't be wasted and burned. But of course it was unoffered food. It's a breaking of the Vinaya. He had looked her as it before he did that, he looked around to see if anyone was watching him and thought no one had seen. But Lumpocha had seen from his window. And at the meal time Ajahn Chah didn't take the that particular sweet when it was offered to the monks. And in his embarrassment, the abbot noticed that and realized he probably knew that he had touched them. So he asked Ajahn Chah why he didn't take the kaolam. But he straight away realized why and he confessed an offense and said, oh, I broke the vinaya and I touched the food before it was offered. So little by little, the Sangha came to warm to Ajahn Chah, realizing he was very dedicated in the practice and very, had very good standard of Vinaya and he was really determined to keep his standard of Vinaya. So he gradually won them over. Kind of the last 
thing you notice at the end of the Vasa there was a t time when what was it oh they planted I think the lay people had planted some fruit and vegetables to make to, to provide a garden that could be later used for cooking to feed the monks and some deer were coming in and eating what had been grown obviously meaning that the monks wouldn't get it and again the abbot perhaps out of his sense of responsibility but also attachment <clears throat> went over one day there was a deer eating and he just hit it to stop it eating or maybe it was a cow I can't remember whether it was a deer or a cow either way he just hit it and he didn't just hit it once but he hit it many many times to drive it away teach it a lesson not to come into the monastery and eat, eat this food or vegetables but Ajahn Chah again noticed this and saw how cruel the abbot had been hitting the animal to get it away he realised it's not beyond his anger In the way we practice, you live in the monastery, there'll be many very ordinary situations which come up but are prompting our kilesas. Feelings of pride when we do something well or we think we're practicing well. Feelings of disappointment, disappointment in ourselves, feelings of disappointment in others. But we're learning to really contemplate this as Dhamma, you know, bringing your mind back to the sense context. So you see a monk or hear a monk do or say something that you feel is coming from Kilesa. Well, it may be Kilesa, but at the same time it's just sound or sight. You come back to your own, who you are, your own eyes, your own ears, your own mind and the reaction. That's also Kilesa. And that's where you practice. You can't do much about the, uh, what, how other people practice, but you can about yourself, how you react, how you attach, the perceptions that you allow yourself to cling to. That's where we practice. Lumpocha was always emphasizing keep coming back to sammatiti, your right view, seeing everything as Dhamma rather than taking it all personally and following our preferences and judging ourselves, judging others. It's just Dhamma arising and passing away. So even if you see somebody breaking a rule or behaving in a way you feel that they're being saying or doing something inappropriate, well, it's still just Dhamma to be known. Something that arises, pass away, it's still not self. Or when we see people doing things that are very good, we're inspired, still Dhamma. Feelings of inspiration can arise and cease as well. We can't always be looking for that in other people's behavior. If we attach too much to a teacher or a person, always relying on them to inspire us, make us feel good, well, we're also heading for Dukkha because you won't always get the inspiration when you want it. Maybe that teacher will one day let you down or they won't be there or they ignore you or they just do something you don't agree with. 
all of this is Dhamma to be reflected on, how we allow the mind to just indulge. The sense contact comes, we indulge in our reaction, our feeling, good and bad. Once we've trained ourselves to see things with samaditi, with right view, seeing it as anicca dukkha anatta, then the mind starts to have a little bit more ease. There's this sense of relief. You're seeing it as dhamma rather than taking it personally, making it a burden. You know, when you see your reactions, your emotions, your feelings, your memories, your thoughts as self, it's a burden, as the Buddha said. Parahawi panchakanda. The kandas are a burden, they're heavy. As soon as you grasp at your own thoughts and feelings, there's a heaviness. When you establish mindfulness and reflect on them as an anatta, there's a lightness. Makes the mind much easier, much more as a sense of relief and happiness that you don't have to grasp at these heavy things. Even unpleasant situations you get into, you don't have to grasp them, take them away with you. you know, if you don't pick up a heavy rock, well, there's no problem. The rock may be very heavy, but if you leave it there by the side of the path or wherever, then that's no problem to you. If you pick it up, then you've got to deal with that weight to keep holding it and it will weigh you down more and more. The candors are like that. The candors are to be seen as they are, as an Ichadukha Anatta and let go of. They're not to be carried along because that's heavy and leads to suffering. When samaditi arises, it's like you know, that's the Dhamma arising in the mind. When you're seeing things more in line with reality rather than just as the way you would like them to be or not like, you know, following your desires, wanting things, not wanting. You like this, don't like that. Just seeing Dhamma as Dhamma, things as Dhamma. They say it's like Previously, before you had samaditi, then it's like you were lost somewhere. Not, you don't know your way, how to get home. But when the Dhamma arises, when samaditi arises, it's like that feeling, now I know the way home. Now I know how to contemplate. Now I know how to free my mind from suffering. There may still be suffering arising to deal with, but you know how to contemplate it. What you have to do to free the mind. That's why the, the Dhamma is the greatest gift. If you can learn it yourself or you pass it on to someone else, you know, got a means then to deal with the suffering of life. If there's no Dhamma, then it's like you're still lost, still out in the wilderness, going around in circles, getting frustrated, tired. So we have a
Naita practice, it's the opposite night as well, so we can carry on sitting for a while and then we do some chanting and we'll have the opposite.